as a church family. Thank you for your continued support. Thank you for participating in community life. Remembering that church only goes from about 9.30 till about midday or something on Sundays, isn't it? There's still all these other types of ways where the church during the week, and we're not just the church when we're on site here. So uh, that is pretty cool. All right. We're going to finish pretty soon because we have to be out of the building, um, but we're going to open God's Word together. Last week, we talked about skill number three in our series dealing with, what is it, walking, with, walking in peace in troubled times. And we talked about skill number three, which was identifying shame. And if you didn't get to see that message, then what you should do is go ahead to our YouTube archive and have a look at that service or get onto our podcast on our church website. You can just listen to the audio as well. And we talked about identifying shame. Now, this week, this is such a massive topic that we had to carry it over for two weeks because shame is a stealer of peace. It is a stealer of joy and it erodes your identity. And you need to sort of be aware of some of the stuff we talked about last week. So if you're not, backtrack and then you can play catch up during this message as well. So today we're going to talk about dealing with shame. Now, I wanted to do this for two reasons. Number one, because the way you deal with shame is the way you deal with any other issue below the waterline of your life, okay? You're an iceberg. The people see this much, the tip of the iceberg above the waterline, but below the waterline, there's all sorts of stuff going on that people won't know. It was what was below the waterline that sunk the Titanic, not what was above the waterline. Would have been too obvious to steer around something, okay? But it was the thing underneath that put the big thing, the big hole in the hull of the Titanic. And what is below the waterline in our life can sink us, friends. And so even if shame is not an issue for you, although I'm yet to meet the person for whom it's not an issue, but even if shame isn't an issue for you, then uh, you'll have something below the waterline of your life that you need to deal with because it will endanger your well-being, endanger your health, endanger your peace, chew up your margin, and then when some trouble actually comes to your life, and how many people know trouble comes? And when trouble does come, uh, and you don't have bandwidth or emotional, spiritual, and mental energy left to deal with it because the issues below the waterline of our lives, they chew up that bandwidth, don't they? And so how we deal with shame is really how we deal with everything. Now, you need to approach this with a sense of readiness, don't you? Because things can happen to you at any time. You can come under attack. You can come under spiritual attack. You can come under an emotional attack. You can come under a mental attack from thoughts, feelings, uh, sensations, temptations, addictions, cycles, your history. Some of it's inside your own soul and your brokenness. Some of it's external from external sources, sometimes the powers of darkness, sometimes the systems of this world, sometimes people that you have a grievance with that behave in a malevolent fashion towards you. But for the vast majority of us, the attack we mostly come under is facilitated by what's inside us. And that's what James said to his listeners. You know, it's what's inside you that causes all this stuff. That's what he said. And so we have to learn how to deal with what's below the waterline of our lives. If you do, you're happier, you're healthier, your mental health's better, your spiritual health's better, your emotional health's better. And when all those three things work well, your emotional health, your spiritual health and your mental health, when those three things are working in harmony and doing well, everything in your life is better. Your physical health's better, your relationships are better, your success in the workplace is better, you're a better student, you're a better doctor. Did you know that you're a better doctor when all those three things at play are well in your life? So there's some doctors in the room and they've done studies and they've found that they can uh, put you emotionally or mentally out of whack by doing, you know how many people know psychologists are really good manipulators, they'll do something that wrecks you and um, then what they do is they monitor the way you diagnose illness and they found that when your spiritual, mental and emotional health is optimal as a medical practitioner, you diagnose faster and more accurately illnesses. If you're like a nurse and you have to attend to all the nursing duties that you have, you do it more swiftly and more accurately and with less mistakes. And, you know, if you're in the medical profession, 
It's good to minimise mistakes. Who could say amen? <laughs> Said the man who ate a half-cooked bat and spread coronavirus all around the world. Um, if you're a sports person, if your mental, spiritual and emotional health are, are well, balanced, optimal and in harmony, did you know that you hit the ball better or kick the ball better or hit the person better, whatever your sport is that you do, you're better at it and it's measurable. It has been measured many, many times. That's because you're designed to live in a place called homeostasis and if you study biology, you think that's just to do with plants but it's also to do with people. Homeostasis means I'm well and I'm balanced and things, all the domains in my life are in harmony, my body, my mind, my soul, okay? If you're not in homeostasis, you're in allostasis. And allostasis means you're, you're stressed, you're out of kilter, you're off balance. And so we're going to be talking today about, well, when I find myself in allostasis, allostasis, then how do I find homeostasis again? Okay, there's a process, there's a process for dealing with it. But this is what I want to do first. I need you to approach this task with a warrior, a warrior mindset. Everybody say warrior. warrior. If you're at home, say warrior. Yes, that's right, because this is your home, so you should have said something just then. <laughs> Write it in the YouTube comments if you're watching. Warrior, I want you to approach with a warrior mindset, okay? At any moment, you can come under attack, and you need to know how to survive an attack. Now, because of social distancing, I wasn't able to get my normal um, sparring partner to make a video with me. He is a great big gorilla. His biceps are like the size of two of my thighs put together. And usually what we do is we train together, but we can't train right now because Danielle's looking around going, are you talking about me? No, Danielle, no. <laughs> Don't be so defensive. This is what I'm talking about. What's below the waterline of your life? Um, and so I had to pick on my daughter, India, to get her to help me with this video, which is going to talk to us about preparing for attack with a warrior mindset. Would you like to check out this video? If you're in the room, turn your eyes to the screen. If you're at home, keep your eyes on your screen. So I'm here with my daughter, India, and she wants to move out of home in a couple of years' time. And one of the things I take very seriously as a father is my need to prepare her for when she's going to leave my nest one day. She's only 17 now. She's going to finish year 12 next year. Then she wants to move off to the city to go to university. So we have a deal. She's not allowed to move out of my loving care and protection until she can defend herself. And uh, so she has to study Krav Maga with me so that she can learn how do I defend myself in a very violent world, especially as a young woman where women are subject to great violence. So India has to learn how does she spot an attack coming? How does she keep herself safe? How does she disengage from a situation of danger? And of course, how does she redirect something so that she's not going to fall victim to someone's violent attacks? Now, I thought I'd show you just one modified, very simple exercise that India has to learn to keep herself safe when things start to happen, when she comes under attack. Because there's some lessons you and I can learn for when we come under attack as well. Check it out. So India is just going about her everyday business. She's standing around, she's hanging out, she's not expecting it, but she doesn't know something that I know. Here's what she doesn't know. I am armed and I am holding a weapon and she doesn't know I'm holding a weapon yet so she's not expecting that any minute something could happen to her and she's not expecting it. So what she's got to do is successfully defend herself. Don't try this at home, kiddies. That's for sure. India, I'm not going to ask if you're ready because you should always be ready for an attack. There's a knife, there's a crazed lunatic coming to attack you, trying to stab you, trying to get you. That's it, that's it. 
Okay, now listen, so what India did very well then is she was obviously anticipating something was going to happen, so she was being aware. The second thing that she did really, really well was that every time a strike or an attack came in, even if I came from different angles, that she was aware of what was coming and she could stop the attack and deflect it. And eventually, what did she do? She didn't stay there, stay in trouble. She moved herself out of the danger zone. And then what? She eventually disengaged so she didn't have to keep fighting. It's not a fight, it's a survival situation. So she disengaged. So we're going to try one more situation and see if uh, India can survive again. <coughs> more time coming from this angle. So she's aware. She anticipated that something was happening. She didn't wait till she got stabbed before she realized, oh, I'm getting stabbed. The second thing is she got herself out of the way. I don't want to stay in the way and get stabbed by something. The third thing is she did, she blocked it. She redirected when she could and she disengaged to get herself to safety. This is what happens when we come under attack. When things attack us, when hostility evokes, we've got to stop it from happening and keep our distance. And you have evidence there you go. I don't know if you caught that little throat strike she gave me on the way in on the last bit there, nearly wrecking my video by decking me. And I was trying to look all cool, calm and collected. The truth is India was going easy on me on that one. Uh, when we train at home, I have to say to her constantly, don't hurt your father, because uh, she likes to get in all the spots. You're not supposed to hit men. Um, so it's good. Yeah, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, awareness is crucial, and so the whole point in self-defense, and if you don't know, I'm a psychotic father who teaches my daughters self-defense things. Um, people always say to me, oh, you know, I bet you all the boys are scared of you, and I say, they're not scared of me, they're scared of the girls, man, they're, they're the ones that are dangerous. Um, and, and listen, the, the first number one learning lesson of self-defense is be aware of what could be happening, okay? So awareness, everybody say awareness. Awareness is the first step in dealing with anything under the waterline of your life. It's the first step, okay? Being aware. What's going on? What could happen? A little while ago, I was waiting for someone in town and somebody tried to rob me at knife point. Um, they were a terrible robber, terrible, because what happened is they came up and they told me that they were going to stab me before they pulled their knife out. They were wearing skinny jeans. They stuck their hand in their pocket to pull their knife out and their hand got stuck when they closed it around the jeans. <laughs> Here's a tip. If you're ever going to rob somebody, don't wear your skinny jeans to the scene of the crime, that's for sure. And so, of course, what I was able to do is I was able to exercise awareness and make sure that I just grabbed that hand while it was stuck in their skinny jeans and stopped them from deploying their weapon. Now, this is a lesson you and I need to learn, okay? It's called spoiling the draw in self-defense terms. So many times in life, you're going to come under attack. And listen, it is foolish to wait till somebody actually cuts you before you realize you're under attack. Isn't that true? Wouldn't it be better to, like what I teach India to do, she's just used to living in a house where any moment she walks past me, I could attack her at any time. And so she can't even get milk out of the fridge without having to fight her way through this hedged, bearded monstrosity every day. Awareness. Okay, so what we want to do is whether it, we're going to talk about dealing with shame today, but this applies to anything else. So if shame's not your in, in your issue, insert something else in the blank. Okay, dealing with shame. The first step is awareness. Be aware of how this affects you. Now you would think this just sounds stupid, right? Like, well, why do I need to be aware of something? Why should I be aware of something? And here's the truth: because most of the time we are less aware than we need to of the things we should be, and we're more aware than we need to be of the things we shouldn't be. Does that make sense? Now, from a neuroscience point of view, this is the truth. Your brain is shaped by what you most pay repetitive attention to. 
Awareness is attention-giving, okay? Attention-giving. Now, you're shaped by what you pay the most attention to. So if you sit in a room in the corner and you go, I'm stupid, I'm fat, I'm ugly, then you will reproduce within yourself all the processes of being stupid, fat, and ugly, okay? And you will be unable to break that feeling of being stupid and fat and ugly. You will be unable to change the sensation that comes there because the more you pay attention to that thought process, the more it shapes the biology of your brain and your body, which means you start having a response response to that particular set of attentions. Does that make sense? This is the truth. You are what you repeatedly pay attention to. Now, here's the thing. You and I, this is how crazy messed up it is to be a human. You and I are capable of paying attention to something and be unaware that we're paying attention to it. How many times someone sat in my office and they've said something and I've said, can I just take you back and draw your attention to what you just said about yourself? One of the common ones, oh, but that's stupid. Oh, but I'm just stupid for thinking that. Okay, stop. Let's go back. Did you realize three times in this conversation you told me what your issue was and then you told me you were stupid? I have that conversation almost every day of the week with somebody in my office and they say, oh, I've never realized I said that. Yeah, well, I've been counting in this conversation. You said it three times in the last five minutes. Wow. Do you think you say that often? Actually, you know, now that I think of it, I say it all the time. Yeah. Well, then why do you feel stupid? Because you're telling yourself, you're giving yourself attention all the time. You're paying attention to how stupid you are. And you are what you repeatedly pay attention to, okay? So you will create those feelings within yourself. Take away stupid, add your problem. Add your adjective, okay? I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. Listen, you shouldn't live in denial of your feelings. You should admit them. But that's not the way that you label feeling. To, to, to help yourself when you, feel, when you encounter strong emotion and to deliver yourself, so to speak, um, that's not the way you talk about it. If I pay attention to how sad I am, I'm so sad, I'm so depressed, oh, I'm so anxious, I'm so anxious, oh, I, I'm such an addict, I really just feel like a drink, oh, I really just can't get off the smokes, okay? All these things, you are what you repeatedly pay attention to. So there's a way to bring awareness to the way you use your attention. If you're wondering, well, what the heck do I do when I feel bad or need a smoke or need a drink or whatever, we'll get to that bit in a couple of moments, all right? But you've got to start cultivating awareness. Awareness of what you're giving your attention to because you are what you repeatedly give your attention to, okay? Awareness, are you aware of what's giving, what, what you're giving your attention to? So we've got to cultivate it. I want you to uh, think about two questions when it comes to awareness. Here they are. The first question is this. What's growing from the soil of shame in my life? What's growing from the soil of shame? Defence mechanisms, defensiveness, reactions to feeling a low self-esteem, feelings of shame, feelings of depression, feelings of dread, feelings of existential dread, feelings of hopelessness the need to bolster yourself and look better, all these sorts of things. They grow from the soil of shame in your life. Now, I'd like you to spend some time reflecting. If shame particularly is an issue for you, exercise number one, what is actually growing in my life from the soil of shame? And I tell you, Christians can be really bad at it because religion loves to shame people. It's not part of our gospel. It's not part of our faith, but it is part of religion. And then Christians have this horrible habit of going, starting in faith and crossing over into religiosity, which is incredibly harmful. Okay, what's growing from the soil of shame in me? Here's the second one. What story do I believe? What story do I believe? You know, every issue in yours and my life, everything below the waterline in our life is a consequence of a story that we believe. Shame simply tells you the story that you're unloved, you're unlovely, you're unlovable, you're not enough, you should be rejected, 
You shouldn't be looked at. You should be criticized. You should be condemned. You're bad. You're wrong. You're substandard. You're a waste. And you, you know, you and I, we could all fill in our own blanks about the stories we, the stories we really believe about ourselves, don't we? So you've got to start cultivating the awareness. Hang on, what story do I believe here? I was talking to someone the other day and they said, Pastor Ben, I don't know why. I sit home and I'm really, really lonely and I just wish that someone would call me and then when someone calls me, I don't take the call because I'm too nervous and too anxious and too stressed to talk to them. That's a shame issue. It's a shame issue. Oh, every time someone rings me, I think I'm just being a bother. I don't want to talk to them. People, my friends invite me out. I get overcome with anxiety before I go. I say yes to it in the moment, then I'm overcome with anxiety and I can't keep the appointment. Tell you why, that's a shame issue because at the end of the day, they're telling themselves a story. The story is you don't belong here. The story is you're not lovable. The story is you're not lovely. And they believe that so deeply that then it hijacks the decisions that they make in life. And even when they want to do something, they can't do what they want to do, okay? Because we all believe stories. So what story do you believe? What's growing from the soil of shame in your life? And what story is this saying? Start asking yourself, especially when you start having recurring thoughts especially when you have an attack of shame, especially when you have an attack of addiction, especially when you have an attack of guilt, especially when you have an attack of that deep dysfunction that you're trying to outrun in your life. What story do I believe? When you have an attack of the temptation you keep promising that you won't give in to, what story do I believe? Okay, well, praise God, the gospel offers us a different story to believe, doesn't it? The cross of Jesus is a stake in the ground that says humans can tell a different story with their lives because God is writing a story, God's telling a story and on the cross Jesus is telling a story about just how lovable you really are because He died for you. He's telling a story about how acceptable you really could be to God because He can take all your pain, all your brokenness, all your sin and all your shame. And the Gospel offers us a way to start telling ourselves a different story. And then we replace the soil of shame in our lives with the soil of the kingdom of God, okay? How many people here love gardening? <laughs> if you follow Danielle Tifi on social media, you will have seen recently that, you know, how many times, I have to do this publicly, honey, to honour my spouse, to honour my wife, to love her as Christ loved the church, um, that I publicly, I harass Danielle all the time about what a herbicidal maniac she is. She kills everything in the garden. However, she pointed out to me recently that I have not publicly acknowledged the great victory that we had in our house, where a weed grew in our garden that was about six foot tall, and then Danielle puts it on Facebook, does anyone know what this is? It's the only thing she hadn't killed, so she was like, I, don't, I didn't even plant that. She's saying to me, I didn't even plant that, I don't know what it is. <laughs> so she puts it on Facebook and then someone says, that's a potato plant. <laughs> and so it grows to eight feet tall and Danielle moved, this is how crazy things are messed up in our house, Danielle moves the hat rack from the laundry out to the garden to tie that plant to it because it was getting so tall that it wouldn't stand up. So how many people in your life have a hat rack doing your gardening for you? That's just how good we are, people. It's just how good we are. And uh, anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, recently, Danielle, I'm getting there, chill, hold your horses, or we'll make you go home and watch on YouTube, Danielle. Um, and so, recently, we were able to harvest two potatoes from Danielle's crop. It's pretty good. And, um, and I, I cooked them with my rabbit stew that we had recently, and uh, the kids love that poor rabbit, the little Hopkins, but um, yeah, they, they, they didn't love it as much on the plate as they did in the backyard. Um, but we, those two potatoes, though, they were both this big. 
they were smaller than a golf ball. <laughs> they were smaller than half a golf ball. <laughs> they were smaller than the golf balls at mini golf. And um, it was so funny. But anyway, Danielle, you're basically a subsistence farmer now. You have fed our family with your hat rack moving abilities. So that's pretty cool. I reckon that's worthy of a little something, something. Okay. Now, if you're a gardener, this is, getting, this is why you shouldn't be in the room, because I always get distracted. When none of you were here and I was preaching, I didn't get distracted once, just got through all my notes. It was, okay, we're going to move on. Listen, if you're a gardener, you understand that, some, that there's mixtures of soils in your garden, okay? There's a mixture of soil. And sometimes you just can't get rid of some of the bad soil. You can't bring a... You know, well, you could if you had lots and lots of money, but it's not always possible in a home garden, is it? To bring in a, a front-end loader or a tractor or something and get rid of all the soil, then only bring in the good soil. What you have to do usually is operate with mixed soils. And so how do you operate and create a garden that flourishes when you have mixed soil? Simple, you just make sure that you put in more of the good soil than the bad soil that's already there. And some of us have things growing from poor soil in our lives, and we spend so much time thinking, how do I get rid of this poor soil? Let me make an encouragement to you. Just add some better soil, friends. Add the soil of the kingdom of God. Add the soil of the gospel. And stop focusing on the bad soil and what it's doing. But just be aware, look at what's growing from the poor soil of my life. And what type of soil do I need to put in here? What type of nutrients do I need to introduce? How should I fertilize what I'm growing in? Awareness. What's growing from the soil? What story do I believe? All right. Well, how do I build awareness? I'm going to think about asking these two questions. But how do I build awareness? All right. Here's the first one. Okay. Look where your pain is. Look where your pain is. Now, you and I, we are hardwired to avoid pain. We're hardwired to not feel pain. So when you feel pain, you'll want to distract yourself, you'll want to deny it, or you'll want to numb yourself, okay? And sometimes if you're a real pro, like I was before I knew Jesus, I was distracting myself, numbing myself, and denying it all at the same time, and I did it for a long time. Okay? Shame was my number one issue, actually. People always say to me, man, why were you so screwed up? Um, but I was depressed from the time I was 10 till the time I was nearly 25. Uh, I was complete self-medicator, drank myself to sleep every night for a lot of years, smoked weed, snorted cocaine. Yep, that's me drinking all the time. Bacardi rum hidden in the kitchen so I could have a quick shot before I had to have a conversation with my new wife, all sorts of stuff. Wrecking all my relationships, wrecking my life. And the number one issue was shame. This is how bad my shame was, okay? When I was 10, I was so dysfunctional that my school and my parents conspired to send me to a psychologist and I had a whole day of tests in hospitals and psychologists, psychiatrists, paediatricians, all to find out why has this child suddenly become so dysfunctional. And my issue with shame was so bad that when I sat there with the psychologist, I tricked the psychologist into thinking there was nothing wrong with me because I was too embarrassed to actually open up and admit the truth. And that started a pattern that went on for the next 15 years where I couldn't let anyone in. I couldn't even look there myself. I had to be stoned or drunk or high 24-7 because otherwise I was feeling deep pain. And when I was feeling deep pain, I was having to confront myself with, why is that pain there? What's going on inside me? And I didn't want to do that. And distraction, denial um, or numbing it is a really, really um, tempting course of action for us, isn't it? Don't look at me like that. It's for you too. It's for you too. So listen, you can't deal with pain that you're not prepared to feel. You have to feel it. No one likes it. I'm sorry to give you the bad news, but the bad news has to precede the good news. You can't deal with pain that you won't feel. You have to feel it. 
I say to people all the time, people sit in my office and they're going through grief and they're trying to sit here, how are you? And they're like, oh, praise God, I'm fine. So are you really though? Because your wife did just pass away. If you could be fine in that circumstance, you must be a psychopath. So how about you just be real with me instead? And sometimes we, what we want to do is we don't want to admit to anybody that we're feeling something negative and we don't want to even admit to ourselves that we're feeling something negative and we don't even want to feel something negative. But listen, I say this to people all the time, there's no way around pain, there's only through pain. And if you don't go through the pain, you're stopped at the pain roadblock, but you're feeling it one day, my friend. You either feel it voluntarily, where you choose, oh man, I'm just going to have to walk through this and get to the bottom of it and go through this storm. If you've suffered the loss of a loved one, you know it because you have to let yourself grieve. If you don't let yourself grieve, that grieving cycle will be 20 years instead of three or five years. You have to let yourself grieve. You have to feel your negative emotion because you can't deal with it unless you feel it. And so for some of us, we've become professionals at evading pain. And that's what drinking problems are, and that's what smoking problems are, and that's what porn problems are, and that's what adultery problems are, and that's what fantasy problems are, okay? That's what people-pleasing is. That's what gossip is and slander. That's what chocoholism is. That's what online shopping is. We even call it that retail therapy. Why? I'm medicating myself. See, we've got all these ways to not feel pain. But listen, you have to become a pro at feeling pain. You might have noticed when India and I were training, we were training with a metal training blade. It's metal, so it's not soft, but it doesn't have an edge on it, so it will only really bruise and maim her, but it won't slice her, okay? <laughs> now, why do we do that? Shouldn't you train with like a rubber knife because then it wouldn't hurt as much? Yeah, but if it doesn't hurt as much, then she's got no motivation to deal with it. So she has to feel a dig in the ribs every now and then, you know, like she does it, she's of consenting age to, you know, put herself in harm's way, everybody. You have to feel the pain. You need the motivation of the pain to work out how you're going to deal with it, okay? So, listen, this is the first step in building awareness. Feel your pain. Feel your pain. Stop feeling substandard because you have pain. Stop feeling like, if God loved me, I wouldn't have pain. Stop feeling like if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't have pain. If I had more faith, I wouldn't have pain. There is pain in this life. Jesus said it flips us, pressure. In this world, you will have trouble. I'm still yet to see that on a bumper sticker as a promise from the Lord. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I've told you these things that in me, you may have peace. You have to confront the pressure and the pain. And for most of us, it's internal. It's not external most of the time. Okay? So feel it. Look there. Instead of denial, resist the urge to deny, resist the urge to numb, resist the urge to flee. Now, you're going to need to do some other steps, otherwise you're not going to be able to do this, okay? Because sometimes it's overwhelming our shame and our pain, okay? Resist. Okay, here's the second one. When you feel it, when you look there, describe it. And don't say this, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. I'm going to tell you a trick Okay, this is a very handy tool that you need to know and this one secret that shouldn't be a secret will unlock transformation for you that you never knew was possible if you practice it. But you have to practice it, okay? You have to get off the couch, get in your training clothes and start getting stabbed by someone. It's a metaphor, don't actually get stabbed by anyone. Okay, you have to practice it. Here it is. Labelling emotion properly is the first step in reducing its powerful impact on you, okay? Labelling emotion properly. Everybody say labelling. When you're sad, you don't say, I'm sad, because then you're not labelling your emotion. Who are you labelling? You're labelling yourself. You're describing yourself. 
and I am what I repeatedly give my attention to, which means when I say I am sad, I'm creating more and underscoring more of a state of sadness in my life, okay? My emotion then drives me, my emotion overwhelms me, my emotion overtakes me. I'm depressed. Well, you're going to be more depressed. I'm an addict. No, well, you're going to be more addicted, okay? So you don't say I am sad. This is what you say. You label your emotion, okay? That's the skill, label. Everybody say label. This is how you label emotion. I feel sad. See, if I say I feel sad, I'm describing to you the acknowledgement that there is an emotion that exists in me called sadness. I feel depressed. I feel ashamed. I feel broken. I feel grieved. I feel heartbreak. I feel angry. I feel enraged. I feel ambiguous. I feel like penguins are smug. Okay, now listen, when I say I feel, I'm acknowledging something. What's going on is an emotion. And I'm saying I feel it, which means it exists for me, but I'm not defining myself by it. I am sad defines me and creates that situation. But listen to this. And the neuroscience of this is true, my friends. When I say I feel sad, that is an appropriate expression of emotion labeling. And when I label appropriately, what happens is the pain that the emotion creates is reduced a little bit. Okay? It's reduced a little bit. So here's your skill. If you're struggling, because we've all got different types of issues, if your issue is that you can't stop yelling and raging in your house, instead of yelling and raging and slamming things and throwing things, slamming doors, slamming drawers, bumping cups down on the table, okay, instead of doing that, this is what you do. You say, I'm really angry right now. And you take a big breath and you calmly express emotion. And what, this is what you'll find, that the explosive feeling depletes a little bit. If you feel really depressed and you want to die, then you say, I feel really depressed. I feel like I want to die. And what happens is you just... It sounds crazy, right? It's a very simple step. This is an adult skill that not enough adults possess. So if you're one of the awesome teenagers in the room, start practicing, okay? I feel deep-seated teenage existential angst, Dad. Good on you for being here. It's always impressive when teenagers get out of bed before 1pm in my book, so good on you. We're glad to see you all. Okay, label it. Everybody say label it. Okay, and then when you label it, feel it. Describe that emotion in the best way you can, but don't define yourself by it. Define the issue you're wrestling with. I feel sad. I feel broken. It feels like this. And then when you're labeling it, describe how it makes you feel in your body. I can't breathe. My heart's beating. I feel tension in the back of my head. I feel tension in my shoulders. I feel a knot in my tummy. Say it. Say that. Okay, this is what happens to your mind when you label your emotion. Your mind goes, oh, yeah, you're feeling that, but you're not defined by it, and that sets you up for the next bunch of steps. Are you with me? You don't know how much I'm helping you. I know you want a more exciting sermon in church, but listen, this will help you. These are life-changing truths, friends, and too many of us get to our older years, and we've never learned to do it, and our negative emotion drives us, and it drives our families, and it drives the culture of everything around us. We carry an atmosphere in our lives because we don't possess these skills, okay? So this is why I'm helping you with them. It's better for you, better for those around you. Okay, here's the, here's the third one. You ready for it? Expose it. Expose it. Let's go back to labelling. There's a way you can label. You can talk to someone, you can journal, you can pray, you can talk to God, you can sing. That's why Missy Higgins' songs are so sad, because she's labelling her negative emotion, see? Okay, La- ex- express it. 
Now, when it comes back to exposing it, this is the thing, especially with all below the waterline issues of your life, and especially shame. Shame says, I can't open, I can't be vulnerable, I can't come out of my castle, I can't take my armor off because nobody would love me if they knew what I was really like. Okay? So this is what you have to do. You have to take the risk and expose it. And exposing it can happen in a number of ways. Okay? Start easy. Talk to God. God, I feel ashamed. God, I feel broken. God, I feel sad. Okay, talk to God. Label the emotion appropriately to God. Here's the second one. Journal it. Write it down. If you don't want your secrets known, write it down and burn the book. Write it down and burn the page. Write it on your iPhone and delete the note. Write it on your Samsung. It'll delete itself. Don't worry. (laughs) Expose it. Okay. Once you get comfortable developing a vocabulary of dealing with it and labeling appropriately, Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Everybody say, tell a friend. Listen, we live in a world that says, I only want to talk to you if everything's fine, so pretend everything's fine, okay? And we're not capable of doing that, so then we have to go into hiding from each other. Do you know you cannot have a life-giving, intimate relationship without this thing that is called mutual self-disclosure? Mutual self-disclosure means, I know yours, you know my hopes, fears, dreams, expectations, deep, dark secrets. And to the extent to which we are known, we are then able to believe that we are loved. See, if I turn up to you and go, hey, I love you, you may believe it, but there may be a little voice in your head that says, yeah, but you don't know this, this, and this about me, okay? I'll tell you why I know my wife loves me, because she knows this, this, and 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 this about me. And she's still here after 20 years of marriage. Well, she's not here right now, so... I hope that's not a bad sign, guys. She's still here after 20 years, so we can have an intimate relationship because I know hers, she knows mine. It's not being used against me, we're we're, we're together. And the biggest life-changing secret that I discovered, actually, Danielle played a key role in helping me come out of all of my issues because when I was 23 or 24... For the first time in my life, I told someone exactly how it was. And she was that someone. I told her that because she was wondering why the man she married was like staying out three nights in a row, drinking, partying, spending all our money, snorting all of our money. And she said, you know, something like, hey, babe, I'd appreciate an explanation. Sounded more like this. I'm going to leave you if you don't change. I'm giving you one shot to change or otherwise I'll leave. And I told her something I'd never told anyone in my life. I opened up and I, I broke my lifelong rule. Don't talk, don't share, don't feel. I took off my armour. What did I do? I came out of hiding. You know, the enemy, my shame, my issues, they had me convinced the day I open up and tell somebody, that'll be the last day of my life. Can I tell you something? The day I opened up and told her, that was the first day of of the rest of my life. I came out of hiding and I discovered that I could come out of hiding. And then I talked to other people and I discovered that I could come out of hiding with them. I went back to church and I found out that I could come out of hiding at church. Church wasn't a place to hide. Church was a place to come and be me and get help for my issues and to be real and to be authentic, not to pretend like I always thought I had to thought, you know, that God is this poodle trainer with little hoops saying, jump through the hoops and you'll get a little treat. And I found out that I could come and I could expose what was going on. Talk about it to a friend. Pray about it alone. But listen, pray about it with someone. I'll tell you something I do often. People say to me often, Pastor Ben, I need you, would you pray for me for this issue? And the truth is, I'll always pray for you. But most of the time, I'll tell you what's better. You and I get together and you pray for yourself. Because most of the time, the things we ask other people to pray for us for, we haven't 
transparently prayed ourselves about to God. Because sometimes we just don't dare believe God will hear our own prayers. And that's shame at work. That's shame at work. I need, I need Pastor Ben, the sorcerer, who can say a few words over me to help in my issue. So what I want to do is I want to get with you, but I want you to pray your prayers. And I want to see them agree with you. Because you need to hear yourself go, Father, I was naked and afraid, so I hid. And God says, come out of hiding. Expose it. Are you okay? We're going to finish. Here's the last one. Get feedback. Get feedback. Expose it, label it, talk to a friend. Get feedback from people. Shame was something deep. It is in a lot of families. Shame was something really deep in our family. I recently started a conversation with my sisters. We're all, let's just say we're all over 40 now. Started a conversation with my sisters and, you know, the four of us, we talked about things we'd never talked about in our lives. We said things to each other that we never knew about each other before. We were able to give each other feedback. Oh, you know, now that you say that, I see that time when this happened. I I see this. I'm not going to lie, that was almost painful, but it was the good type of pain. You know the type of pain when you rip a Band-Aid off? The healing pain? (laughs) You're looking at me like, no. Expose it and get feedback. Ask your closest friends, hey, I'm wrestling with this issue can you tell me how you see this affects me? Oh man, that's an expensive conversation. But listen, healing is on the other side of that if you make your choice appropriately about who you discuss it with, okay? Can you see this in me? Can you give me feedback? This is, I'll tell you, all pathways to transformation are through a door that has a sign on over it that says, can you give me feedback? I promise you, I promise you. My office is filled by two types of people. People who'll come in and we might spend an hour together. They'll come in and they'll talk for an entire hour because they don't want feedback. They just want me to have compassion and mercy on them. And I do that every now and then. But to be honest, that's not the calling of a pastor just to give people compassion and mercy, okay? My job's a shepherd. I'm supposed to lead you somewhere to green pastures that God has for you and I'm supposed to feed you. Um, And there's another group of people that sit in my office and they do talk and then they say, what do you reckon? Can I get some feedback? Any ideas? And together, not because it's me, not because I'm special, because you could do this with any number of people, but the ability to get feedback will help you grow. Feedback helps you grow. Just choose the person appropriately, okay? Danielle and I, we had a, <laughs> we had a real change in our relationship as we discovered all these things. And now, like, let's see, yeah, it's like 20 years of walking with Jesus now, and at least the last 15 years has just been an incredible incline incredible incline and I can remember when we started practicing labeling our emotion and I would instead of slamming a coffee cup down on the bench I'd go honey I'm I'm incredibly furious about what you just said and right there I mean that solved every argument because Danielle Nelly fell over right there she was waiting for the anger the yelling the slamming of the door the me jumping in my car and speeding off down the street all the stuff okay the drunk guy to come home later and sleep it off for three days and then we just wouldn't talk about it because we wouldn't want to awaken the issue again. So we practiced labelling and it changed our relationship and she'd go, honey, I'm just feeling so deeply attracted to you right now. That's about the only feedback that she ever had to give someone like me. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Um, that changed our relationship. Then, then, then we, we practiced getting feedback. I, I feel really furious about that. 
is there a reason that you did that? And I'm inviting open, open conversation. I mean, this will change your relationships, friends. It'll change your relationships. Get feedback. Okay. Those are your steps. And then you've got some spiritual work to do, okay? Here it is. It can be summarised in this sentence. Invite the light in. Invite the light in. Any issue you have below the waterline of your life, especially shame, has you convinced, has you convinced, I can't let this out in the open, okay? It'll be the end of my life if it's out in the open. Listen, it's the start of your life if you let it out in the open. Okay, so invite the light in. Expose it in the ways we've talked about. Invite the healing power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Put the Word of God in there. I feel depressed, but the Word of God says I have a future and a hope, okay? It's not going to change you now, but you're banking it. It's like eating veggies. The Bible is like nutritious supplements. It has a cumulative effect over time, okay? Do it more. Do it regularly. Put it in there. Put it in where the issue is. Resist the impulses, the thoughts and the feelings that it raises, but don't resist it by denial. Notice them. I'm feeling angry right now, but I'm not going to let my anger cause me to explode and have a rage attack. I'm feeling sad right now, but I'm not going to let my sadness drive me to a bottle of Bacardi rum. Spiritual warfare against those impulses. I come against this in the name of Jesus Christ. I recognize that the enemy wants me to feel defeated, wants to, make, wants to make me feel dark, wants to keep me addicted, wants to make me broken and ashamed. And I take authority over this issue in the name of Jesus and I resist it. I rebuke it in Jesus' name. I promise you, you will walk in victory if you start doing these things regularly. Pray through those impulses with a friend. Ring a friend. Hey, I'm really struggling, man. Let's pray together. And then you pray and have them say amen. Seek wise counsel. The proverb says that all the way through. Seek wise counsel. Meditate on God's word. Spiritual work. And here's the last one. Interrupt your cycles with praise. Interrupt your cycles with praise. The psalmist says two things about praise. The first one it says is that God sits enthroned upon the praises of his people, the praises of his people. So when I praise God, I build a throne in that moment for God that God sits on, that God inhabits. I'm building the presence of God in my life. So some of us have got to learn that praise is not just two fast songs on a Sunday at the start of a service, but praise is any time I verbalize glory and gratitude to God for who he is and for what he's done, okay? Interrupt your cycles with praise. The second thing the psalmist says about praises is this, may the praises of God be a two-edged sword in their hands. And there's something powerful about responding to an attack with the warfare of praise. Okay, what I want you to do, if you're at home, thanks for joining us. If you're in the room, thanks for joining us. We're about to close our service. I'm going to do two things. The band is just going to sing a song. I'm going to pray for you and then let's just marinate in a song for a moment, okay? 